Hello, viewers. Good morning from New York. This is Vibhuti Jha, and this is Jaipur Dialogue USA. Wanted to ask you something very simple, and we want to talk about it. What is political Islam all about? And one of the important things is about understanding a philosophy, you need to go deep dive into it. And today I have had the great privilege of welcoming Bill Warner from Nashville, Tennessee here in the US, who has done an outstanding work in the domain of political Islam. He has written books, he has theorized, and he talks about the challenges that political Islam poses to the world around us. Welcome, Bill, to the show, and uh, welcome to Jaipur Dialogue USA. Well, I'm happy to be here because we're going to talk about my favorite subject. That's right. You know, one of the most important things is to, you know, be, you know, you have been on Jaipur Dialogues before, and uh, you had a good long conversation with Sanjay Dixit, and you know, he has written a book. Uh, Unbreaking India, where we have talked about in detail understanding the Islamic mindset. So what I wanted to say to you is that I want to congratulate you also for being in the top 10 list of those people in America who speak the truth about Islam the way it is being practiced. So congratulations for that list, to be in the list as some of the organizations have put you there. But what we wanted to also understand is, is that when did the whole thing begin? How did this entire ideology penetrated America in the way it is? And we see it. We see it in the current play out happening on the political front in America. So please do share about a few things that, you know, you have talked about the five principles of political Islam. And you have also made a very interesting statement that about 86% uh, people follow Muhammad, only 14% follow Allah. Can you enlighten us about that? Well, what you're referring to here is the fact that <clears throat> when you read, when I first read, I came to the study of Islam late in my life. I studied religion all of my life. I was raised in a very religious family and I've always thought that the three main questions of, <clears throat> of religion are important for every, everyone to know. Why are we here? Who are we and where are we going? So I've studied all, I've studied Buddhism, some Hinduism, various forms of Christianity. But I then realized that I had a gap in my knowledge, which was that of Islam. The important thing about what I've just told you is when I started to read Islamic doctrine, I had a whole history behind me. And one of the things that leapt off the page as I kept reading was, this is about me. Because if you study, for instance, Buddhist sutras, it's how to be a Buddhist. But the Quran spends over half its time ranting and raving about someone like me. I have a special name for me. I'm called a kafir, unbeliever. And a kafir is hated can be deceived, can be raped, can be enslaved, is, is lower than animals. Allah hates kafirs. Well, this is a tone that I didn't particularly care for, and so I paid a special attention to it. And I call that part of Islam that deals with me and you political Islam, because it is not religious Islam. Religious Islam is going to Mecca, 
praying five times a day, contributing the zakat, fasting during Ramadan, and declaring there is no God, Allah, Muhammad is his messenger. But the biggest part of the, this doctrine that concerns me is what concerns me. And so I call it political Islam because it's surely not religious Islam. So I think, by the way, I'm, the point I'm really trying to make here is I'm a scientist. And one of the first steps you do in science is to define precise terms. Because if your terms aren't precise, your thinking is fuzzy. For instance, we have a pseudo word, which is called Islamophobia, which some people live in terror of. So the language that we use is very important. That's very true. And one of the things that uh, is concerning people who are observers of the scene around us and what we are observing today is the democracies of the West and democracies everywhere are virtually bending backwards, bending backwards to accommodate and appease <clears throat> the Islamists or the Muslims. Although there is a distinction in the word Islamists and Muslims, but they are bending backwards to accommodate, appease and please their sentiments and their values at the compromise, at the extent of compromising our own belief systems. So the, one of the biggest challenges that I, I feel is happening is that when I noticed that if you even asked a question, you are immediately branded as Islamophobic. I mean, in a normal conversation also, even if you were to ask the question. So I remember, I mean, I'm, I, I like Ayan Ali Hirsi, who was the first black woman from a very dangerous country who went over to Sweden, sought freedom, became a minister, but she's ever since been hounded out, even in the great United States of America that we are citizens of, that even universities and media channels don't host her because she was sharing her experience of Islam the way it is. Whereas Columbia University and others will easily host a rabid Islamist to speak in their forums to bring to espouse their cause. How do you see this shaping up in America? Is it an uneven dialogue? Is the freedom of speech true, truly practiced in America as we know it now? Well, I can tell you that I can, <clears throat> I can tell you for sure that freedom of speech is not practiced in America. People live in fear now. I'm an old man. I never thought I would live in an America in which people were afraid to voice their criticisms because you can be deplatformed. I can give you a personal example about how this deplatforming goes on and how Islam is winning. Under Bush, the Muslim Brotherhood was very influential with regards to him. He declared Islam to be the religion of peace. When the Muslims complained, the Muslim Brotherhood complained to Bush that the FBI was treating, was teaching what I would say is the truth about Islam because some of what they were teaching was white papers that I had submitted. They said, no, all of this had to go. The man who was in charge of the training of the FBI later told me, he says, Bill, yours was the last papers we, we threw out. I told him, I says, look, there's no comments here. This is just graphs of how many words appear. They said, it is offensive to us, remove it. So this fear factor, I couldn't get it. I couldn't go to a university today to speak. There'd be demonstrations and a high security fee. That's one of the ways they can deplatform it. They can say, well, you can come in and speak, but you have to pay $80,000 for security. Well, good luck on my having that kind of money.
So political Islam is on the, on the rise today and it's working extremely well. As a matter of fact, this is going to sound odd. I'm somewhat of a fan of the Muslim Brotherhood. I admire my enemies because they are good at what they do. Number one thing they do is they want to win. We're now in a position where we don't want to win. We want to tie. We can just compromise, compromise, compromise. Well, a compromise sometimes can be a reasonable thing to do if you're dealing with reasonable people. But we deal with Muslims and don't even know who we're dealing with. Let me give you an example. We're definitely lost in Afghanistan. I could have told you we were going to lose in Afghanistan years and years and years ago because I saw one of the strategic papers written by Stanley McChrystal as to how to win in Afghanistan. I got a copy of his document, which was redacted, of course, for tactical purposes. But three words did not appear in this study. Islam, Jihad, and Muslim. Well, good luck on winning a war against an enemy you cannot even name. And that's what we have here, an enemy we cannot name. If I, I name the enemy and I receive a lot of, well, let's just call it dissatisfaction. So political Islam is an incredible problem. The, Biggest thing it's got going for it is it always wins. What has happened in, in the struggle between the West and Islam is that we have fought against Islam with sword and shield, but we've never really fought against Islam on its doctrine. And those who are in the universities don't discuss its doctrine at all. So now then there's arisen a new layer of scholars, myself, Spencer and others, Andy Boston, who are reading the source documents and engaging Islam in an ideological war. We must fight an ideological war if we don't want to fight a physical war. This is very serious business. We have here two civilizations. Our civilization is based on the primal ethical rule of the golden rule and the primal intellectual rule of critical thought. Islam does not do that. Islam has dualistic ethics. How you treat it depends on who you are. And it does not have critical thought because no thought is allowed to contradict the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, which are the three sacred texts of Islam. Now, you said it very, very correctly. And one of the things that really bothers me is the fact that the global leadership in the West particularly, and as the, as the statistics are, it's very simple that people are not confronting the reality. Like you said, Mr. McChrystal, General McChrystal's report doesn't even mention the three words. So when we ignore or we hide our you know, put a veil on ourselves not to see the bleeding obvious, then we can't <clears throat> treat the ailment. And that's the challenge that West is facing. And what I know is that ever since 2014, 93 countries experienced Islamic attacks and 32,000 plus people died. In 2015, 29,000 plus people died in various parts of the world. It's a different matter that more Muslims have died than non-Muslims have died or Kafirs have died. But the issue is that we are not acknowledging the ideological battle that is what is going on. So you have very correctly identified that we as a people, as a democratic nation, as the free will nation, must come to the grips of the fact that the amount of money that is pouring in, in the name of charity, in name of donation, from the many Middle East countries to various charities here, to influence, to manipulate, the media and the thought processes, how do we deal with that when the enemy is using 
your own tools to defeat you? How does one confront that challenge? Well, I, my way of doing it is to publicize exactly what the truth of Islam is. However, we must enter a new phase in our struggle. We have, if you will, sort of won in the idea that we can write good comments to articles that are written. There's a lot of knowledge about Islam out there now. There's a lot of people who are worried. They can write good emails. They can talk to their friends, but they're not really doing anything in a group. Our next phase if we're to win this war is to be able to start to form groups that can work together. Warriors do not defeat armies. And the Muslims are an army. They're not warriors. That is, they don't fight as individuals. Even when the so-called lone wolf jihad attacks happen, there has been a lot of interaction with other Muslims to get them ready for this task. So we are, our, our, our foes are well experienced. And I'd like to mention something about money. Because when you run a group, you need to have some amount of money. One of the things that the Muslims do so exceedingly well is to donate money to their cause. I can tell you that on my end and others are like me, I, the only way I'm able to stay in the fight is the books that I sell. If I were a Muslim, I would have more money than I would need. But instead, because I'm a Kafir, all Kafirs seem to fight alike, alone. And we have to form a group and we have to understand that if we're going to fight a war, you need funding. It's like I'm a special agent of the Green Beret or something. And what I have to do is after getting out of battle is to go back home and start a small business so I can buy some enough money to buy some more ammunition and go back to war. This is no way to win a war. We need money. We need organizations because individual, the, the number of individuals, when I first started doing this, I was very naive. I started the day after 2000 and one 9-11. I thought that when I wrote books that contain the truth of Islam, the horrible truth of Islam as to what it does to us and civilization, I thought people would run to get my books and go to war. And they ran all right, but in the other direction. <laughs> so we have here, we don't have groups, which we must have. And we also don't have funding, which we must have. Somehow or another, what we're doing is doesn't seem serious to moneyed people and business people. And yet, under Islam, business is bad. There's a reason for this. Good business needs good ethics. And what happens is in Islam, you have dualistic ethics. You see a lot of bad business in Islam because all you have to do is to declare your Muslim brother to be not really practicing Islam, and then you can, he falls under the dualistic ethics of you can screw the guy. So we're going to be impoverished. The other thing is when Islam, if Islam wins, the whole, the whole world becomes like Syria. So this is very serious business, but the people in power and the people in money don't treat it as a business at all. I think they're afraid of being called names. I've, one of the things I've learned is, is that most people are cowards because you can beat them off by just calling your names. Well, I've been called every name in the book and it hasn't hurt me yet. So we're going to have to go around and we're going to have to see that we're at a new stage of warfare. If you're losing in war, you need to either double down what you're doing and perfect it, which we can't, 
we've tried that, it doesn't work. So we need to look at war in a new way. We need to look at this as a civilizational war and a civilizational war that we lose, we will lose all that is precious to us, including freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Thank you. Uh, you referred to 9-11. However, we know, I will come to 9-11 very soon, but we know that the United States has been under one kind or the other of confrontation with political Islam ever since 1979, you know, when the, and the embassy bombings, you know, you have had a whole series of attacks in the United States, including US military establishments. And we have had a series of attacks in MENA region and other parts of the world. And I mentioned earlier that there were 93 countries that experienced Islamic terrorism and violence, political ideology. But I want to share with you something like 9-11, which I was here and uh, a Muslim friend of mine told me, and this is something which is a firsthand experience of one-on-one -on -one conversation. When he told me that this is the beginning of our final battle. This is a one-on-one -on -one conversation that I had. And he's a very gentle gentleman, good gentleman. And he said, this is our final battle against the Western democracies and ideologies and every democracy that exists because we cannot fight. These are very prophetic statements soon after 9-11. He said, we cannot, the Islamic countries do not have the strength, the military strength or the political might to fight any kafir country one-on-one, -on -one. but we can certainly wage a guerrilla warfare. How many John Doe's will you protect with your Marines? Whether I attack you in Philippines, Hong Kong, Mumbai or Boston. That was one. And second thing was remarkably significant when I was told that we will hit you hardest on the very principles that are dearest to you. And those are freedom of speech, freedom of religion. We will ask for everything. We will give you nothing. And it will be your attorneys, believe it or not, the black, white, Jewish, Indian, and whoever, who will fight our cases for free because we will have made those inroads. These are remarkably important words and that's what is happening today. As we see in our political society, political life right now, you know, when Georgia runoffs happened, Senate runoff elections happened, the two prominent Congress ladies who are Muslims who made the remark and it's on it's on internet. I'm not making it up when they said that the Muslims have a call to vote for Democrat Democratic Party to uh, to to win the elections. I was wondering that if a Hindu group had said that let's vote for X or Y based on our own faith, what would have happened? But about Islam nobody talks. You are immediately branded as Islamophobic. So the reason why I'm having this dialogue here, because we also confront a similar scenario back home in India. We are home to more than 150 million Muslims. But there is a minority majority tagline that goes on. There are, these are minorities everywhere. And that's where the gameplay that is very critical. Your thoughts? I think you're exactly correct. Again, I admire the Muslim Brotherhood. They know how to plan a strategy and they do, do strategic thinking. What's the original, there was years ago, there was the uh, charity that got raided in Texas, Holy Land Foundation. And we had their Muslim Brotherhood documents. They laid out 10 year, 20 year 
generational plans. What's the scariest thing about those documents is to look at when they're written and to see how much of it's been accomplished. We do not even have a single strategy by any group. So we're lost. Now, I know this sounds terribly pessimistic, but we have, <clears throat> we have to see where we are before we can see where we're going. And we are not willing to admit that this is a war, no matter what they do. And this, this bridge you're talking about, it always goes in their direction. Nashville, Tennessee is a very religious town, primarily Christian. And so they have these bridge building episodes with the Jews and the Christians. I went to one, they are disgusting, absolutely disgusting. The Christians and the Jews mumble, agree with anything the Muslims say, never bring up any real problems. It used to be that I spoke a lot before COVID. And anytime I spoke in a church, I asked the following two questions. How many Muslims have you converted? And how many Christians do you support in the, in the regions of the Middle East and Africa? The answer is always none. So the point I'm bringing up to Christians is, is that those organizations which should be fighting Islam, for instance, the FBI, are totally in their pocket. So we're going to have to realize this is serious and we're going to have to realize that we need to change what we're doing. What we're doing here this morning is educational. But how can we start gathering groups together so that we can work together? Having tried to do this, by the way, let me tell you that what we need best and do not have easy access to is what I call community software. What happens if a group tries to start, they're very quickly bogged down in email systems. That is, you can't really carry on a big discussion with a lot of people. And yet, we, for instance, this software needs to be developed, but no one's developed it. If, this were, if we were Muslim Brotherhood and needed this software, we would get it built. Again, I come back to the point that I admire the Muslim Brotherhood. They do it right. As a matter of fact, I think we should copy them. <laughs> that's, that's very fascinating. As I always say, that your opponents teach you a lot more about yourself than you learn from yourself. Because sometimes we get blind to our own blindness. It's a famous statement of mine that when we are blind to our own blindness, then we obviously don't see the bleeding obvious. So the point which I'm trying to bring about is that is there is there, it, it seems to be, I mean, it's not a question is there, but there seems to be a total misunderstanding of the causes that drives a particular group of people. And that's what is, you know, we continue to idealize the root causes, you know, we talk about root causes of why it's a poverty, the governance system. So we blame the poverty and the way the corruption exists in those societies that they want freedom. Now, freedom itself is misunderstood completely. We know what happened with Arab Spring. You know, that's what we what we know about it. So that's not the cause. Most of the majority of the terrorists are very bright people. They were qualified engineers, they were qualified people, and they stepped into the, so there is definitely far more ideological to the whole process than it is. So we have fought wars on drugs, on illegal weapons. We have, we have fought war on obesity and everything else, but we don't win those wars. So calling it a war is one part of the linguistic phenomenon, but the, dealing with the ideological part, how does one go about it? If you are not even allowed to question or make an inquiry, 
And that's the dangerous part, which I see that the freedom of speech is gone through the windows. You are not even asked to, expected to ask a question. And look at them. They are dominating our social life, our dialogue, even in India for that matter. They want to bring about a, a kind of a law that does not allow discussion or criticism of Islam or questioning of Islam in any way. And we are succumbing to that. What is it about them that forces us to succumb? Why are we so much in the mood to appease, accommodate at the extent of losing our own identity? Well, what you've described is certainly true. And it's a question I dwell on a lot. How can people not care? How can people demand to be ignorant? I come back to the churches. The churches actually are supposed to keep up with such thing because it is, if you will, a competitor in the religious world. But the churches do nothing. I'm not sure that I can answer your question as to how to, how to make this happen. But I do know this. If we keep on doing what we're doing, we're going to keep getting the same result, which is we don't speak up. And yet... I'm truly puzzled by all of this. I do not abuse other people, but I do not let other people abuse me. What we're faced with is we become a nation of people who don't mind being abused because they have some white guilt or some other guilty reason for it. They don't want to be called a bigot. Well, I don't want to be called a bigot either, but we're going to have to face up to the fact that their number one weapon is simply calling names. How we're going to make this uh, people think it's serious, I do not know. If I had that answer, I, I would be a much better man. But we do need to start talking about forming groups. I know that. No, there is a very beautiful Sanskrit word in our philosophy. It's called Vad Vivad, which translated roughly in English means debates and dialogues. And yes. those debates and dialogues are required. Indian Sanatan principle is full of Vad Vivad discussions and dialogues. And as a result of it, that's how you become learner of something new, or you unlearn something that you knew wrongfully in the Vad Vivad the dialogue debates. But what I'm concerned about is that even people who have left Islam and call themselves ex-Muslims, they are being hunted and hounded. The question here is the violence part of the ideology that if you disagree, then Bill and Vibhuti are to be killed, the kafir thing. I have asked this question of many Muslim friends of mine, that when will you delete kafir word from your language and linguistic explanation of various people? So the point which arises is, back to the basics again, I always say, draw analogy from sports. Uh, you know, a dunk will be part of the ESPN's top 10 show, but a layup is as good as two points. The point which I'm trying to make here is, at what point in time must the political leadership realize that the playing to the vote bank politics, playing to the gallery, identifying the wrong causes is not going to fetch any outcome? What must we do so that we are not branded as phobics and that there is a reasonable dialogue happening at any given point in time. What must the political system recognize? I have a suggestion. We've been talking about deplatforming, like 
it's very difficult for me to get a public place to speak. But there is one public place that we're guaranteed to be able to speak. And that is in political campaigns. When Muslims run for office, we must attack them there. Not on the basis of being a Muslim, but on the basis of how do you, what, what, do you support child marriage? Do you support FGM? Do you support jihad? That is, we must take every Muslim candidate and we must hang the Sharia around their neck. Is it true that in your Sharia, I'm a kafir, lower than, lower than an animal, hated by Allah? So that we have here a public forum. What we need to do is to, there needs to come a day in which every Muslim who steps up on the platform when they're running for an office is that they know they're going to get asked questions about Sharia. They know there's going to be signs in the room and brochures handed out. That is, we need to make the public policy, the public place you have to be in to run for office. <clears throat> we need it to be a place where we can attack them because they can't throw us out of a political meeting. So, we, for instance, we've just had a uh, federal judge appointed. I think his last name is Karashi or something like that. And he said, I don't know anything about Sharia. Well, that's bogus. That's BS. Of course, he knows a lot about Sharia. He should be asked, and yet when he said, I don't know a lot about Sharia, no more questions were asked. we got to get down and pick at the small details before he's, it's the details that the devil lies in. So we have to do this. Make every time if you run for office, whether it's school board, senator, governor, that senate and senator, they will be running for the senate. One of the reasons they like to run for office is it spreads fear amongst the Kaffir. Their, their, their planning is brilliant, but we can turn this against them because we have a forum that is a public forum. The media will be there and let them call us what they will. But what we want to point out is, is we want to ask the candidate questions. That's important to understand that when you ask the candidate questions, you are not going to persuade him. In years of dealing with a Muslim, I've never had them say, hmm, you have an interesting point there. Never heard it. They never grant you anything but we must make them squirm in public because who we want to educate is the audience there want to vote for them. So that's one of my plans that I think we can pull off. Yes, you are right. I was actually going to talk about that federal judge's statement. I mean, I have no problem in whoever is qualified to be a judge or whatever, but I have a problem in terms of the ideological bent that drives you and how it will affect your decisions in the future, because this is a lifelong position in the US federal system, that you are a judge and you have to adhere to the constitution of America, not some foreign you know, belief system. And that's where I come to the other aspect of the fact that, you know, why is it the one thing which I realized was, it's quite early, soon after the 9-11 conversation, it's a critical moment in my life and my learning. I'm a perpetual learner. I like to learn. I always tell my Muslim and Christian friends, you are, I'm delighted that you, with your faith and belief in Jesus or Allah, just leave me alone. <laughs> leave me alone. You can seek your solace and, you know, you know, nirvana, so to say, in, in, in Jesus and, and Allah. I'm perfectly fine with that. That's who we Hindus are. We have no problem in whatever you worship. Just don't tell us that we are wrong about our own prescription. But the, be that as it may. But what is important here, Bill, is that I realized soon after 9-11 and my conversations that were happening, there were four distinct categories. You said about 
They are very well planned. Yes, they are. They have a four clear approaches. One of them is ISIS, Taliban, extreme violence people who have who claim a Muslim Brotherhood, for example. They claim that they are the only representative of true Islam, right? And everybody else who doesn't believe in it, they are not Islamic. So already they categorize you. Then you have a second category of people who are the educated intellectual group of people who seek from our societies to bring them more inclusive agenda that bring them in. Those people are poor people. They have not experienced freedom. Bring them in, give them concessions while they don't demand reciprocity from them anyway. The third one is, you know, the third category of people is, you know, people who are wearing hijab, working in mom and pop shops. They are all seeming to be victims, but they are not changing. They are more forceful adherence to their own belief systems. And then you have institutional elements like care and others who are nonviolent organizations, but extremely active on their political ideology. So you have these four categories of people who all have one thing in common, claiming victimhood from our societies. And we relent, we give in, and we concede, we do things to appease. That strategy is not going to work because they are not imbibing our values. How do we contest that? I don't know. We have this foolish idea that if we're nice enough, they'll change. But we need to understand that they interpret our niceness, not as niceness, but as weakness. At one time when I first started out with this, I had concern for my life and a Coptic Christian spoke with me. He said, I don't think you have any trouble with your life. He says, number one, you're too public a figure. It would cause trouble to kill you. But she says, the other thing is, he said, you never insult Islam. You never condemn Islam. You never attack Muslims. And you stand up and say what you say in public. Therefore, you're seen as a strong man. And he said, the only thing that Islam respects in a Kafir is strength. So I think that we need to start manifesting that strength. We need to make it such that when they run for office, they're a little afraid before they go on stage because those people are here tonight. Those people who have attacked me in the past. So we have to come up with methods that are not just defensive, but methods that are offensive. Oh, that's that's very correct. And you know, like uh, I do know about one thing is that sometime when the 9-11 happened, the World Trade Center was had fallen. And uh, soon thereafter, there was an Islamic center to be built right across, yes. right? And, uh, you know, I recall, you know, when they talked about the ostensible reason, oh, we want to educate the West about the peaceful nature of Islam. I had made a statement to somebody saying that, you know, you don't need to te teach us what Islam is. What you need to do is to teach the countries that you come from what the West is, what democracy is, what other others are. You know, you need to do that work in open an Islamic center in your countries to bring about better understanding of the way of life that you are choosing to come to. But here is the interesting part. They don't come to America for freedom. That is a misnomer. They are coming here with a purpose. And that's why I want to spend the last few minutes of the conversation here today, because this is a big topic. It can't be resolved overnight. But a couple of things that we have to have a continuous debate and dialogue. 
And if we do, if they do not participate in the debate and dialogue, then we have to call them out. But as a sports, I draw my life lessons from sports. If baseball and cricket, two of the famous games in America and India, if the batsman, if the batter is scoring hundred runs or he's hitting home runs after home runs, the pitcher has to figure out a way to get him out. It's very simple. You have to pitch the batsman out. Uh, likewise in cricket or baseball, you have to make field arrangements in, so, in such a way that either you run him out or you catch him out. To draw that analogy from sports, your enemy is using the rules of the game that you have offered him. If he is, and I applaud your statement when you said you, you admire Muslim Brotherhood because he's playing by the rules of the game that exists in our land, in our societies, in our philosophies. How do we outwit them? You know, it is the same thing like I was watching the basketball game. If you can't handle Shaq or uh, the Greek freak in Milwaukee, you've got to devise a way to stop him. It is not, you can't complain that he is scoring runs over me. So how does one play the game now? How do we define the rules of the game? How do we tweak the rules if, the need, if there is a need to do that? Because you have to bring them to the playing field. Well, first off, most Muslims know very little about Islam. There's, there is one way that some people have successfully attacked Islam. I only know of a couple of people who've done this, but it's been very successful. In Australia, there's a Baptist minister who has converted 2,400 Muslims to Christianity. Now, I personally don't care what your religion is. Whether you become a Christian or a Buddhist or an atheist, I simply don't care as long as you're not a Muslim. So he has found a way to attack Islam, which is to explain to the Muslim who Muhammad was. Well, Muhammad was not a very nice man. And the more you get to know him, the more you realize that he was not nice at all. Well, he was nice to those who would submit to him. So we've got to, we have to pressure. One of the ways to pressure Islam is to teach them what Islam really is. Now, by the way, this will not work for the jihadis, but those are very few. The people who know the most about Islam, I found are jihadi imams or jihad, jihadis themselves. The reason they do this is not because they're poor. It's not because, but because Islam they see as a victim. And by how do we see, they see Islam as being a victim here in this country because we don't let them use Sharia law. So therefore they're always the victim. But we need to start attacking them in their own doctrine because their own doctrine, light is the best disinfectant. So that's one of the things we need to do. We need to create areas where we can either we need to have people trained who can debate Islam. We need to have people trained who can teach Muslims who Muhammad really was. Muhammad was a slave trader. Let me give you an example about what I mean here. I was approached by a chaplain in a prison system who says, what can we do to prevent so many black Americans from becoming Muslims? I said, oh, that's easy. No problem at all. He says, well, how would you do it? I said, simple. I would teach them who Muhammad was as a slave trader. I would teach them that Muhammad owned black slaves, white slaves, sex slaves. I said I would teach them who Muhammad was as a man who wholesale slaves, tortured slaves, prayed while slaves were being tortured. So 
That is, but when I told him that, he says, well, I couldn't do that. I says, well, if you can't tell the truth, I can't help you. The point I'm making here is, is that Muhammad is not defensible. Allah is a God. Well, I don't know how you attack gods other than saying this one can't tell stories and is very contradictory. That's one of the things. I was raised in the deep country where storytelling was a, a pastime. And one of the things I realized when I read the Quran is Allah couldn't tell a good story. Minor point. But nevertheless, we need to take Islam and shove it in the Muslim's face. We need to take Islam and shove it in the public's face because it does not bear any real investigation. So the way, so that's my method. Debate. Thank you. Thank you for your... The other part, which is also very important, is the part of... Uh, dialogue and debate parties to begin to ask questions and make inquiries. And I'll give you a very simple example. And that is something at an ideological level, at the community level, at the society level, at the individual level, we all need to get engaged. So here is an example. You know, at once upon a time, not too long ago, an investment banker, Muslim friend of mine asked me, why is Islam so misunderstood in this part of the world? I said, it's not misunderstood. It's understood exactly the way you are conveying it. <clears throat> and so I, he said, what about it? I said, let me ask you, you are a very educated man. You are an investment banker. Do you really believe in the concept of 72 virgins in this 21st century? He went quiet for 10 seconds. And I said, that's where your answer is. So when an educated person like you can't openly refute a baseless, a baseless uh, storyline or imaginary story. How do you expect the not so educated or the people who have been swayed by the power of Allah or Muhammad to believe a particular set of things? How does one ever correct that? And this is the question I ask of my own faith. I ask of Christianity that as educated, aware people. If we do not engage in conversation, then we, I'm, I'm afraid, we will suffer from the dreaded disease called educated incapacity. We will not see the truth. And once the truth is a victim, that's the problem. Then we become liars to ourselves. So to that end, I would say, this is my last proposition, is where do we go from here knowing what we know? Like you have done a lot of work. There is a conversation going on and I'm not afraid of being branded as one or the other. I'm making a normal inquiry of somebody who wants to discuss this to find out because there is no pleasant Christian cancer, Muslim cancer or a Hindu cancer. Cancer is as deadly as it can get, regardless of whichever faith you belong to. That is a ground. That is a universal truth. A migraine or an ulcer doesn't have a religion written on it. There is no religious monopoly on the diseases. We have to begin to understand that part, that there are certain universal truths, and there is nothing else that has taught the universal truth better than this unfortunate pandemic called coronavirus. It did not discriminate between colors, races, caste, gender, rich and poor, country specific. It hit everybody equally. Depending on the kind of precautions you took, you survived. You did not take precautions, you suffered. So my thought process here is, and your, this is the last uh, discussion point or uh, about this one. How do we use science and technology 
to remove the veil of ignorance. Because what I do know is that what we call miracle is miracle is nothing else but absence of science and technology. Going to the moon was a miracle at one time. It's no longer a miracle. You know, cure of cancer was a miracle at one time, not until we found the treatment for that. So the miracle is happens when there is an absence of science and technology. And I have a very nice conversation piece that I share with people. Whether it's anybody's God, let me not name any God, but we do know one truth. And that truth is universally from Angola to Zambia, A to Z, every country in the world, every woman takes nine months to deliver a normal child, biologically normal child. Nobody's God could shorten the length of delivery, nor could he extend it. These are universal truths. Everybody's blood is red. Everybody's teeth is white. People go bald. People have hair. People live 90 years to in a, in a poor country. People are, die at age of 30 in a rich country. Coronavirus hit a US, which was so remarkably great medical system. As badly as it did India, we didn't have a superior medical uh, infrastructure. How do we use science and technology for the dialogue? to belie or to prove a point that we as an educated people engage in dialogue and, and, and a conversation. I think the technology we need to use is the same technology that Islam uses so well against us, which is the web, the communications. And we cannot use the web like Twitter, Facebook and such because we'll be shadow banned. One of the things that is happening is, is that the conservatives have been so attacked in the uh, media, social media, is that they're now beginning to create their own platforms. So that's, that's a step because this goes back to the idea that we need to create groups and groups need ways to communicate with each other. So I see the web as having the effect. I mean, Islam has used the web to great brilliance. So we need to use the web also, once again, getting people together because we must have groups, but to have groups where we need to connect each other. And one of the, so I think that the technology is being developed that will let us small groups, let us be groups that are not hindered by Facebook and others who are shadow banning us. I'm shadow banned on Facebook, Twitter. I've had the, I mean, I've been attacked many different, different times. So we need to have a way for people to talk to each other so that they feel support. One of the things that I notice is, is that so many times that people, when they discuss Islam, they discuss how well the Muslim Brotherhood is doing. Instead of that evoking the question, how do we beat them? They just say, in some way we're beaten. The UK is toast, Sweden is gone, France is dying. And we have one of the things we need to do amongst ourselves is to see that we broadcast our own bad morale. We need to have an optimism. That is, we don't know what it's going to take to win, but we're going to win no matter what the cost is. And we do not have that attitude now. One of the things we subject from, I think, is we're subject to the laws of wealth. Too much money is bad for people. I was raised extremely poor. One of the best things that happened in my life was I got to know a group of people in the Northeast who are highly educated old families. And I realized that there was something worse than being poor, which was to be raised really rich. 
And I think we suffer from the disease of wealth. Because if I need to raise an army, what I would do is you go to the poor section of town. You don't go to the rich section of town. Rich people are lousy warriors because their key thing is to keep thinking, how can I protect what I have? Not seeing that protecting what they have can be done not by paying any attention to their personal problems, but it's a group problem that's going to destroy them. So we need to we need to find ways to connect amongst ourselves. We need to develop an attitude of we're going to win no matter what. And if that doesn't work, we're going to do something else. Right now, when we see how well the Muslim Brotherhood is doing, we just get depressed. We talk down. We talk downer talk. That is, we're we're doing so badly. We're doing so badly. We're doing so badly. We need to analyze the situation to see how badly we're doing. But then we need to respond with optimism and working with a group. So there's not well-formulated plans, plans I have, as you can see, but I do know the principles. We need groups, we need ways of communicating amongst each other, and we need an attitude of we're going to win this war no matter what we have to do, no matter how much punishment we have to take. And so that, that's my solution to that. It's a very personal kind of solution. I, I, I definitely see the, see the desire in you to bring about a solution to the problem and uh, you know we, as we always say that uh, you know there is no other way than debate and dialogue violence has to be if it has to be it's not about right left christianity jewish jewish islam or atheism or whatever but the question is knowing what we know now you know it's not about one particular thought or other how do we take care of that so you have given some prescription and, uh, you know, we have to have more dialogue of this kind, more creation of awareness that, that is required in the people to rise up and make inquiries, question the validity of something that exists or doesn't exist. I mean, I'm, I'm brought up in an environment in India where we were told the God exists and we believe in God. I'm a God loving person. I'm not a God fearing person. Why would I fear God if he created me? So if he's created me, he must have something in mind about me. But there, are one, there is one particular issue that I always uh, ask is, there has been an incessant war between Islamic Jihad and a Christian crusade. And will that ever come to a truce? Or is that the reason, the control and supremacy of one belief over the other that is the cause of all the conflicts, the battle for control and supremacy. Is there any way that can be a compromise or an understanding that we are fighting a useless war? There is nobody superior or inferior. Your way or my way, be the good man that one needs to be. And that's what is important. That message of humanity needs to transcend to people. That it doesn't matter who you are, who you pray to, but what you do that eventually defines you. My way of putting it is similar to what you say. I only have two concerns about a religion. Both of them concern me. What kind of character does it develop and what kind of ethics does it develop? It is on this point right here, which I say parts Islam from all other religions. To my knowledge, Hinduism has some version of be kind to others as you would be treated. Am I correct? Yes, you are. I call this the golden rule. 
Well, it turns out the golden rule exists in all kinds of cultures, societies, and religions, but it does not exist within Islam. Because the golden rule says to do to others as you would have them doing to you. And which others? All others. Whereas what we have in Islam is you're kind to your brother and your sister who are Muslims. So we need to understand that we're having a war here that is a war for unity. We need to see that all of us who are who are not Muslim. And by the way, I don't care if you're an atheist or not. I, mean, I have some atheist friends who think, well, the Muslims don't care anything about me. They just care about the Christians and the Jews. Woe to you, because it turns out that Islam despises the atheists more than they do the Jew or the Christian. That's right. <laughs> so we need to see here that we are fighting a civilizational war, an ethical war. I and mean, the reason I bring up this point about dualistic ethics is this is a very sensitive point to anybody, because Islam is the most developed bigoted system in the world. No, no civilization is more bigoted than Islam. This business of, well, you're a brother, you're a sister if you're another Muslim, but if you're a Kafir, you're lower than an animal. Allah hates you and I can screw you in a business deal. So these are some of the things we need to keep in mind. Bill, thank you very much for being here and sharing your thoughts as wonderfully as you have done, I will not call you bigoted, nor will I call you anti-Muslim. I will say that somebody you have studied and you are expressing your thoughts. So, you know, there is a very important word about atheist part of it, the Islamic ideology. We saw this in happen in Kashmir area. Half a million Hindus had to leave Kashmir because the Islamists made the statement, convert, die or leave. So when you are threatened with these kind of, you know, end of the world mission, then you have a choice to leave. And that's what I'm trying to say is that in my message to the world around is we are all humans. We have nose, eyes, ears, bodily parts, which are performing identical function. In what way are we different? Genome research has proved that more than 98% we are just identical. The rest of the difference is only because where we live and what we eat. So the question here is, Shall we change the terminologies that we use to uh, we use these days to define and relate with each other? Let's not be tolerant of each other. Let's be accepting of each other. Let's kind of establish equality and equity based on recognizing and respecting individual differences. Otherwise, at 80, you have hair and at much less than that, I don't have. How do we establish equity and equality here? So the question here is very simple. We have to change the terminologies that we use in our conversation. Respect individual differences and acceptance of who is as he is. Unless and until we do that, using science and technology, that iPad and iPhone and smartphones do not have any religious brand on it. You know, you might use the language differently, but the iPhone, airplanes, you know, scuba diving, diseases or our bodily features, they do not have a religious monopoly to that. Thank you very much for being here, gentlemen and ladies who have been watching this show. Please like, subscribe to our channel, share with others because we are trying to bring about removal of the disease of educated incapacity by thinking through differently. With these words, have a great week ahead and see you again next time. Thank you, Bill. Bye-bye. Thank you.